0: Good morning again. It's good to be back with you. Um, I forgot my Bible. Sure. Uh, So this series that we're in is, uh, we're looking at the meals that Jesus ate with people in the Gospel of Luke. Thank you, darling. Uh, Because this is a major theme in the book of Luke. And it's also, eating is a very important thing it's a very important practice in human society and human lives. When you eat with another person, you're never just eating. There's always more going on. And when Jesus is eating with other people, he's never just eating. There's always more, than, more going on. And as we'll see today, when Jesus talks about eating, he's never just talking about eating. He's always talking about something more. We've gone through several meals that Jesus has eaten with people. The first one was the meal with Levi, the tax collector, the sinner. And that's where we talked about the fact that Jesus had this habit of eating with sinners while they were still sinners without expecting them to be changed first before he would deign to eat with them. And how the Pharisees were surprised at this because they would, have ex- they would expect you to show the proper signs that you're back on the right path before they would eat with you. Um, and it seemed to be that Jesus, Jesus was of the opinion that eating with him was the first step in the journey to being restored. And so he considered eating with him to be some kind of solution to sin or some kind of cure for sin. After that, we looked at a meal where Jesus ate with a Pharisee, and we were surprised to find out, you know, we talk a lot about Jesus ate with sinners, but he actually ate with a Pharisee. And a woman with a sinful reputation came in, and Jesus, we talked about how they each had very different motives for wanting to eat with Jesus, and that the proper motive that this sinful woman had was to actually connect with and know Jesus and to show him personal gratitude. Since then, we've also talked about the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, Tim came in from TRH and preached on that. And then we talked about Martha and her uh, the fact that she was being distracted by so many things when really the point of eating with Jesus is to spend time with Jesus. That is the, the essential ingredient in the meal is spending time with Jesus. Last week, Derek Voorhees from Boise Bible College came and talked to us about another time when Jesus ate with Pharisees and how Jesus uh, confronted them with the fact that they were being stumbling blocks to the kingdom. And today, we are going to look at a third meal that Jesus had with a Pharisee. It's interesting, we talk about Jesus eating with sinners, which he absolutely did, but in Luke, we have more meals with Jesus and, and uh, Pharisees than with, hosted by sinners. There's three times he eats with Pharisees, and there's two meals where he's hosted by sinners. Uh, so this is one more encounter that Jesus has with the Pharisees. It's the last time he eats with them, and it's a story that I believe gives us a clear window into the heart of the Pharisees, because This confrontation between Jesus and them has been growing throughout Luke, and we finally get a really big window into their hearts as we look at this passage. Now, I'm going to read this for us in your Bible. We're going to be in Luke 14. In your Bible, this is actually four different passages, and you may be tempted to take them as discrete topics, as discrete entries, but they're actually one meal and one conversation. So I'm going to read through the whole passage because I want you to hear it all as one conversation, and then we're going to unpack it together. Luke 14, 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat at the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts of the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for a a person more distinguished than you may be invited. If so, then the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste at my banquet. So as I said, normally when we read that, we, are getting, we see that as four different, or three different stories. There is Jesus healing someone on the Sabbath. And then there's Jesus giving them advice on table etiquette and humility. And then there's the parable about the kingdom and uh, the people coming in. And we treat those as three distinct stories. But they're actually one conversation. And as we put them together and read them in the context of each other, I'll be honest, it it took me a little while to figure out how they flow together. But they do flow together. Those section headings, you know those aren't in the Greek, right? Like the original copy of the Bible did not have section headings or chapter numbers or verse numbers or periods or punctuation of any kind or even technically spaces between the words or lowercase letters. It looked very different is my point. And, and it was, it's actually one continuous story. And what you see when you look at this is this is Jesus honing in on the heart of the Pharisees' mentality and honing in on what exactly is wrong, what, like the root of the problem with their behavior. Because Jesus starts by bringing up a, a controversy that he, he just will not let go of. This is the third time that Jesus provokes this exact same conversation in the Gospel of Luke. So there's a man there with swelling, and Jesus asked the experts, the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remain silent. This is the, Jesus brings this up, right? And this is the third time Jesus brought it up, And this is also probably exactly what, it said the Pharisees were watching him. This is exactly the kind of thing they were watching for. Because this is the key point of disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees. That the Pharisees would say, healing is work, and you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath, and so you should not heal on the Sabbath. So they're saying, the letter of the law says this. Now, they're actually adding letters to the law, because the law doesn't say that healing counts as work. So it's not a. This is not a question of should we follow the law or not. It's actually a matter of what did God mean when He said don't work on the Sabbath. Does He are we supposed to have this rigid legalistic understanding of that, or some other understanding? And Jesus would say that healing someone is not work. The healing someone is not is not against God's intention for the Sabbath, and so it doesn't violate what God told them how God told them to observe the Sabbath. So what's, But what's happening here is this points out a heart condition with the um, or, or a conviction that the, the Pharisees have, that this main difference between Jesus and them, which is that the Pharisees prioritized rule-keeping over compassion. It was more important to them to have clear-cut rules and know exactly what was allowed and what was not, and they would stick to those rules even at the cost of showing compassion to their fellow Jews. Right? They wanted rules, and they wanted to, And they, when they knew the rules, they were going to keep them no matter what. Well, not quite no matter what, because they were willing to break it if, he's, he points out, don't you break this rule if you have an ox that falls in a hole or your child is in a well? So they do make exceptions. And that's the first clue if you're misusing God's rules is if you bend them for the situation, right? Especially to make them easier on yourself. But this is ultimately the mentality, the the problem Jesus has with the Pharisees. It's not the fact that they want to obey God's law. It's the fact that they care more about meticulous rule-keeping than about compassion. And so then Jesus addresses that issue. Now, you, you can be forgiven for thinking that he actually goes on to talk about table etiquette. Because your Bible has a break in between the paragraphs, and then it says, humility or something like that in the title, right? So you might think he's now talking about table etiquette and humility and giving practical advice on how to wisely handle so hierarchical social situations. That's not what he's doing. So notice what it says. Jesus moves on from the conversation. He says, he, when he noticed the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. What is Jesus, everything that Jesus is about to say, what is it? a parable, right? A parable uses he- earthly terms to talk about heavenly things, right? It uses earthly terms to give a heavenly perspective. So Jesus is going to go on to talk about where you, like, how you should handle being a guest at a meal and how you should handle hosting a meal. But he's, he's talking about meals, but he's not talking about meals. You see what I mean? It's a parable So it's not, he is not simply concerned with you saving face at a a dinner party, right? That's not his primary concern is to look out for your social life and make sure you don't embarrass yourself at at a fancy dinner party. He's talking about something deeper. But notice that what he picks out in the Pharisees is their need to be at the head of the table, which is connected with, this controversy, their, their position they take on the controversy over healing on the Sabbath. Now, I'm going to tell you what I see in this. I'm not claiming that this verse that I read show, says what I'm about to say. I think the whole story does, but I'm going to set you up for it here, okay? The Pharisees were consumed with FOMO. This is a common term, uh, not common, this is a term that the kids are using these days fear of missing out. I'm going to argue today that the Pharisees were consumed with the fear of missing out. They wanted to get the best place at the table. They didn't want to mess out on the prestige of the table. And they wanted, but there's another table that they're concerned with. Remember, it's a parable. They're not just concerned with their seat at that table. They're also, they're mainly concerned with their seat at the Messiah's table. Because notice, as soon as Jesus mentions, when Jesus tells the parables, he keeps connecting it back to this bigger picture thing, right? At the end of the, um, when he talks about, you know, don't elevate yourself at a meal, but go to the end so that they'll bring you up, right? The point of that is not simply you not getting embarrassed at a meal, because it ends with, those who humble themselves will be exalted, and those who exalt themselves will be humbled. That is not a blanket statement about dinner parties, Because that doesn't actually end up happening at dinner parties, right? Normally dinner parties, the people who exalt themselves get exalted and the people who humble themselves don't go to dinner parties. He's talking about something bigger. He's saying that these principles of humility and elevating yourself, these are principles that will will be worked out at the, the feast of the Messiah at the end. And when he talks about what you should do as a host... Remember, he connects it with the reward that you'll get at the Feast of the Righteous at the end. That if you only give feasts to benefit yourself, then you'll have already gotten your reward. You don't get credit in heaven for throwing feasts that benefit yourself. What you're supposed to be doing, that will, what you can do that will affect your seating at the table of the righteous, is to do things that benefit others. That's kind of the, the basic logic of it, right? He keeps connecting it back. And then, as soon as he mentions that feast, one of the Pharisees, their ears perk up. One of those at the table with him heard this. He said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Because that's what it's all about. They are concerned, they are consumed with the fear of missing out on their place at the table. And they believe that there is a limited number of seats at the table. And who gets invited to the table depends on who keeps the rules. So they obsessed over the rules because they were afraid of missing out on the kingdom of the righteous. This is why, When so notice that they're willing to break the rules. If I'm a Pharisee, I'm willing to break the rule on the Sabbath for my son who falls down a well or my ox who falls down a well, but I'm not willing to heal that person on the Sabbath because that might endanger my place at the table. Notice the common theme and the exceptions that they're making. They're afraid of missing out. I'm afraid of missing out on that oxen, or on my child, or I'm afraid of missing out on the feast of the kingdom. But ultimately, this is what they're consumed with, is that they don't want to miss out. In the short term, whether it's the good seat at the fancy dinner party, or they're keeping their livestock, or their children, but ultimately, their place at the table. I already talked about that. So here's the problem, though. There's a controversy. There, there, Jesus disagrees with them. Jesus' message contradicts this whole mentality. Because Jesus preached a kingdom based on grace to which everyone is invited. This is the difference in G- between Jesus' interpretation of the law, Jesus' heart, and the Pharisees' interpretation is that Jesus says it's not. It's, there aren't a limited number of invitations, and there isn't a limited number of resources. God is gracious. He takes care of his people, right? This is the Jesus who said, don't worry about your food or your clothing. Seek first the kingdom. This is the, this is the Jesus who said, no, don't fight back against people who persecute you. Don't hate those who hate you. Basically, Jesus says, focus on the kingdom, and God will take care of what you need, because God is gracious, God is generous, and you don't need to worry about missing out. When Jesus tells that story about the master who's throwing this feast, is there a limited number of seats at the feast? Like, is there a a problem with seating at the feast? No, right? In fact, the, the king, or the master of the feast, wants it to be as full as possible. He cares about it. His main priority is for the feast to be full. He's not concerned about the quality of his guests. He's concerned about how full the feast is. And he has so much room that they bring in all the beggars, they bring everybody in town, all the people who live in town who are poor and needy, and they're still not full. He says, I still want more people here. Go out and find everybody who's walking past town and make them stop here for the night and come eat at my feast because I want my meal to be full. Does this master have a problem with his food supply? Are there a limited amount of resources for this feast? This is the way Jesus portrays the Father, as inviting us to a feast that is full. It's not a mentality that there's a limited, uh, uh, you know, just a limited number of tickets. Getting to heaven is not getting to the Super Bowl. Getting to the Feast of the Messiah is not like getting tickets to the most exclusive concert. In fact, and so Jesus has been saying in his ministry all along, he's been saying that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of grace, generosity, compassion. And that's what the Pharisees don't jive with. That's what they don't quite, doesn't quite fit with their mentality and they're unwilling to accept that. Which is interesting because Jesus wasn't the first one to teach this. In chapter 13 is the last time that Jesus had this argument with the Pharisees, and this time it was a woman who had been crippled and bent over for years. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. First of all, what day did this happen on, this, the, chapter 14? What meal are they having? Sabbath meal. So this is the Friday night meal. The Sabbath has started as soon as the sun goes down, and they're celebrating the Sabbath, right? That's important because what is the Sabbath about? Well, notice that in chapter 13, it was another Sabbath day, and a woman who was bent over for, for several years uh, came, and Jesus healed her. And they had the same argument about whether he should heal her. And, and Jesus says, should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? He's saying, it, it, what better day could there be for healing than Sabbath? Why is that? Well, because Sabbath was not simply about taking a day off. It wasn't simply about getting a day of rest so you can work harder during the work week. The point of Sabbath was one day out of every week, you and everyone who works for you gets a break. All your servants, all your animals, everybody gets a break no matter what. This isn't a way that people, because like we found a way to make money off the Sabbath, right? Like I worked in, in electronic sales and we made our most money when other people took their Sabbaths, right? On the days they took off. I had to work because that's when I could make money. No, they shut everything down. Everybody of every level takes a break one day out of the week. One year out of every seven, the whole, all the land gets a break. Even the, the land, the farmland gets a break. They don't farm for a year. They also regularly forgive debts. They regularly release slaves. And they regularly return all the land to the original families that owned it. If you actually follow Sabbath, from the very beginning, Sabbath was meant to create a, a community of grace where there was enough for everyone, where you didn't have people accumulating wealth and other people going into poverty, where you didn't have people who had to work every day and other people who got to take a break. Where, and, and the whole thing depended on trusting that God would provide enough food because you can't take a year off farming and, and without trusting that God's going to provide enough food, Right? So, if they actually followed the law of Moses, they would have been dependent on God's grace, and they would have learned that when you obey God, then He will take care of you. The story of the Old Testament tells us that they never did that. They never actually trusted the law. But what we see is that Jesus and Moses preached a kingdom based on grace to which everyone was invited. God's going to take care of His people, even if you take a year off farming. Every 50 years, you have to take two years in a row off. And it's for everybody, even your servants, even your animals, even the dirt gets a break. Which sounds like a wonderful world to live in, right? And yet, there is still this note of threat in what Jesus is saying. There's this note of danger. Because Jesus warned the Pharisees that they were in danger of missing out on the kingdom of grace. So maybe their fear is well-founded, right? They're afraid of missing out, and they're going to miss out. So they should be afraid, and they should be trying hard, and they should be making sure all the, just change your dies and dot different I's and cross different T's. That's what a lot of us have done as Christians is said, oh, well, yeah, you still might miss out. You're just following the wrong thing. You just didn't get the memo that the law of Moses isn't the the law you have to follow anymore. There's this new thing from Jesus, so we're gonna figure out what all those rules are, and that's, right? But Jesus clearly is saying that there is a chance of missing out on the kingdom of grace. Remember, he says, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And he says, not one of those who were invited will get to taste of my banquet. So there is a possibility of missing out on the kingdom of grace. But where does that possibility come from? A possibility, uh, basically, what we see in this story is that they were missing out on grace because they wouldn't accept grace. This is why we miss out on grace. It is because we will not accept a world based on grace. Because it is more comforting to us to be in control of how we get in, of what place we get at the table. We don't want to trust that at the end, when the master shows up to the meal, he's going to bring us up to the head of the table, right? We we would rather claim the seat at the head of the table and hold on to it because we don't trust. This is the problem. This was the problem with the Israelites. The Israelites didn't earn God's grace by following the law, if they followed the law, God's grace was going to sustain them so they could follow the law. Right? You can't follow the law without God's grace. So the whole point was they were supposed to live in God's grace, but they couldn't accept a world in which God takes care of his people and his people should focus on other priorities. They couldn't accept a world where I can let God take care of sustaining me and I focus on building the kingdom. They weren't willing to live in that world and and here's why this is where we get messed up where we think in a world of grace then there's if we say god is gracious and there's a kingdom of grace then nobody can miss out that's where we get into universalism and say god would never exclude anyone from the kingdom of grace which is not what the bible says jesus frequently talks about people being excluded from the kingdom of grace but the question is why well i want you to imagine this um what it's like for a person in a world of grace where we're not in competition where there's enough seats for everyone at the table there's enough food for everyone at the table imagine what it's like to have a person living in that world who thinks there isn't enough who thinks they need to okay i grew up with two older brothers right we ate by the law of the jungle if you don't eat fast you don't eat at all To this day, I struggle with eating my food too quickly because we also had a rule that if it's on your plate, no one can take it. So I would snarf down my first plate and then pile up my second plate and wait while the first plate digested because then my brothers couldn't take that food, right? But imagine what happens in a world where everybody is living by grace, but some people are not. I have a great visual for you. Um, In 2015, the mayor of London, who has since become the prime minister and resigned as prime minister, uh, went to Japan and he play, they had him play a game of street rugby with some adults and some kids. Okay? And it was just a, a goodwill game. They weren't keeping score. It was just to have some fun. And so it was some adults uh, in suits and some 10-year-old kids. Okay? And Boris Johnson got the ball. If you don't know rugby, just think of it as football without pads. It's, enough, it's not true, but it's close enough for the sake of this story. That's um, essentially what it, So he has the ball, and he runs with it, and there's a 10-year-old set up to block him and Boris dodges to the side, but, you know, he's a, he's a relatively older politician, so he doesn't do it well, and he starts to slip, and this 10-year-old jumps in front of him, like moves with him like you're supposed to in rugby, but Boris can't stop, and they collide, and they fall on the ground. Not a big deal, except that the press got a picture that blew it way out of proportion. This is the picture. Just this, the, you know, the future prime minister of England just plowing through a 10-year-old. This is what the Pharisees look like. The Pharisees are playing for keeps. They're playing to win the game. They need every touchdown. They need to score points. And they don't care who they plow through. So when the Pharisees are there at the meal and they're refusing to help this man with dropsy, this man with the swollenness, that man is the 10-year-old kid. Have you ever played in a community game where somebody was taking it way too seriously? Or if you take it to another level, imagine that you got together for a fun game of soccer and one person decided they were going to play football. So they pick up the ball and they and they push through, and they tackle you when you've got the, like, it completely disrupts the game, right? Because in order to have a kingdom of grace, people have to live by grace. We often, when we talk about God's grace, we think that it's just a matter of God lets me in even though I'm broken. It's, but it's not, God's grace is not just about whether or not I get into heaven. Actually, what scripture talks about more is how God's grace to me affects the way I treat others and the way it transforms our communities. Because if God is gracious, then we're not keeping score. This is not a game we play for score. There is no like, At the end, we get participation trophies. Right? This is not, we're not actually competing with each other. The point is that it's a game of grace, where there is enough to go around. And when we live by this selfish fear of missing out. We're consumed with the idea that we might miss out, that I won't get enough, that I won't get what I want. That's when things go wrong. That's when our world gets disrupted. That's when people get hurt. That's when 10-year-olds get plowed over. Right? And here's the thing. Actually, all of this... This is very similar to something that I talked about, really the heart of what I talked about when I gave a series of lectures in May on politics in the Bible. Because our human politics basically are founded on this idea. There is not enough to go around. People are going to fight over it. So how can we control everything in such a way as to minimize the level of fighting so we can compete in a nicer way over the limited resources that we have? There is not enough to go around. We're afraid of missing out, and people are going to fight. Um, And how how can we best structure society to try and avoid as much fighting as we can? And that's what our political systems are designed to do. They're designed to create order in a world where there isn't enough. As Christians we believe something different about the world. We believe that God is gracious and that he provides for his people and for his plan. This is why I, I would argue, and, and if this language turns you off, then just ignore the fact that I'm talking about politics because it's the gospel nonetheless. But when I say politics, what I'm saying is that as Christians, our politics are different because we have a different base assumption about how the world works. We don't believe that there isn't enough. We believe in a God who is gracious. We believe in a God who provides. And a God who made a world that works beautifully when we follow his design. In the Garden of Eden, it says, The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The garden was full of everything that was good to eat. There was so much, more than Adam and Eve could ever need. The world began with God's grace. But I'm going to argue that sin takes root... When we doubt God's grace, when we start to look out for what's mine, I'm going to argue that, and I haven't gone through the, the, you know, all the work to make sure this is true, but I suspect that all sin, all sin takes root when we doubt God's grace. I think that's how our, our godly desires that we're designed with get twisted because we get so afraid of them not being satisfied that we let them take over us. But notice what happened when the snake talked to Eve. He told her, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Because God's holding out on you. You're missing out. That one fruit that you're not allowed to eat, the only thing in all creation that is harmful to you, it's actually the best thing here and you're missing out on it. That's the tactic that he chose. To evoke this fear of missing out in Eve. Notice, he, didn't, he couldn't say that she was lacking anything. Right? All he could say was, maybe you can be more. Maybe you can be like God. Because she had everything she needed. And the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. That fall came from her doubting, that God, doubting God's grace, doubting that he would provide for her. Now, one of the things that we do is we assume that somehow something happened in the fall so that the, there isn't actually enough now. So now that we're justified in feeling like there isn't enough, that we can accurately adopt Eve's mentality because of the fallenness of the world. But that's not true Because the entire rest of the story of the Old Testament is the story of God calling his people to trust that his grace still reigns, that he still will provide for his people, and that if we live according to his grace and his design for the world, that he will take care of us. The very next person to sin was Cain, right? And God punished Cain for killing his brother, and Cain was afraid. He said, if you send me away, then I will die. And someone will murder me. And God put a mark on him. Now what did that mark mean? It didn't mean that he was cursed. It was a mark of protection. It was a mark of God's grace saying that he would protect Cain. As Cain wandered, and what did Cain do? He stopped and he built a city to protect himself. Instead of trusting in God's grace. And over and over again as you go through this story, the test of Abraham, when God called Abraham to follow him, was trust in his grace. And Abraham kept failing. He kept, he kept lying because he was afraid of being killed. He kept you know, um, you know, sleeping with a servant because he was afraid that God wouldn't give him a son the way he promised. Over and over again through the Old Testament, God keeps calling his people to live in his grace and to prove to the rest of the world that God will take care of his people. And they keep failing until one person finally lived a life completely dependent on God's grace and proved that God takes care of his people, that his grace is enough. Because that's what Jesus did. Right? Jesus came to this earth and he trusted God and he followed God's plan. You'll notice how, how the Bible talks so much about Jesus being obedient to the Father. And Jesus talks about the Father in a way that makes sense for us as human beings, but not necessarily, it makes it complicated when we understand that Jesus is also God. It's because what Jesus came to do is to show that a person can follow God's plan, can obey the Father every step of the way, even to the point of a torturous death on a cross, and God will vindicate him. Because that's the hardest test for us, is when we find out that being faithful to God means we're not actually, He's not going to give us enough in this life for what we want. Right? But it turns out that God is so gracious that he offers us eternity and as Jesus was faithful to God every step of the way he died on the cross in obedience to Christ or in obedience to God and he was resurrected and ascended and given authority over everything and to prove that God's grace can be trusted And that is so hard for us to believe. The hardest thing we can do as God's people is to trust that there will be enough. The trust that God will take care of us because we have such a strong temptation to be pulled back into that fear of missing out. So much of marketing is pulling on your fear of missing out, right? If you don't buy this product, you're going to miss out. Look at how much fun these people are having with this product. You don't want to miss out on that, do you? Look at these people who don't have this product. They live in black and white. And they can't even like crack an egg without spilling out all over the... You notice that? Like in those commercials, people in black and white are just inept at everything. That's the world that we live in if we don't buy this product. You're missing out. Or political ads. Political ads always pull on your fear that someone is going to take something from you. That person is going to take this thing from you. They're going to take this right from you. They're going to take this privilege from you. They're going to take this thing from you. You should be afraid of that person. But me, I'm going to give you the things that you want. Vote for me and you'll get all the things that you want. They advertise that way because it works. The same advertising Satan did. And as Christians, we are susceptible to that. In fact, we have our own set of things that people will advertise to or our own set of fears that people will play on to get us worked up and to get us afraid and to get us to act out of the fear of missing out instead of living in God's grace. And then when we get caught up in that fear of missing out, suddenly it becomes justifiable to us to plow through 10-year-olds. And we start seeing people as obstacles to the things we want instead of people who need grace and mercy and love. And we can see the person in need of healing in front of us and see them as an obstacle to me getting what I want, to me getting my place at the table, whatever table that is. But the message that we have as believers is that God is building a kingdom of grace. There is enough there are enough tables, there are enough seats at the table. There's enough food at the table. We don't need to act out of fear. We don't need to act out of hate. We don't need to feel threatened by what we see in the news, by what we see in our neighbors, we, because we know that God is going to win, and we know that he has enough for us. No matter what gets taken from us in this life, there is enough for us in our eternal life. We don't need to act in fear. The kingdom of grace is always open to us. All we have to do is accept it. See, that's why Jesus, when that guy said, blessed are those who eat at the king, who get a seat at the, at the feast, and Jesus is thinking, you don't understand. The problem isn't getting an invitation. You think, man, lucky are the people who get the, the golden ticket. to go. No, that's not the thing. The thing that keeps us from the, the table is not lacking of an invitation. It's that we're unwilling to accept an invitation to that kind of feast. My favorite book of all time is The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And in that, there is a, something that one of the characters says to another that I think is really profound. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, Thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek find, to those who knock, it is opened. What he's saying is that, that what keeps us out of God's grace is not that God has a limited capacity to forgive or that he has a limited number of spaces. It is the fact that we decide we don't want that kind of world. We don't want that kind of kingdom. I'd rather be in competition. I'd rather try and get first place than get a participation trophy. I'd rather be able to risk, I'd rather be able to win than to play without keeping score. But God is building this kingdom in which all of that pressure to win is removed. All of that fear that we might not make it, might not be good enough, is removed. And what keeps you out of that kingdom is not that you didn't earn it, it's that you weren't willing to live in it. So I want you to think now about where you're at in that invitation. Maybe you have never accepted God's invitation into the kingdom of grace. Maybe you still really are out there competing because your only hope is in winning. Maybe you're afraid because you don't seem to be winning. Most people don't feel like they're winning. And my message for you is that you don't have to win because the real game doesn't keep score. God provides enough. And he works with you because you are enough. Now, he's going to take you where you're supposed to be because we're all broken and we need to be changed. But he's not waiting for you to get a certain score before he drafts you onto his team. There are no tryouts, even if there's a lot of practice, a lot of work that goes in when you're on the team. But today is the best day for you to be a part of that team. Now maybe you are on the team, maybe you have accepted the invitation to grace, but you find that you keep getting pulled back into keeping score. You keep trying to pick up the soccer ball and run with it like it's a football. Maybe you find that there are some 10-year-olds in your wake and you need to recommit to living in a kingdom of grace. If that's true of you, that puts you in a uh, category with roughly every other Christian who's ever lived because it's not natural to us to live in that world but today is the best day for you to recommit to living in a kingdom of grace and offering grace to others sharing that grace with others because you cannot accept God's grace without being transformed by it and if that sounds being transformed by God's grace sounds like a huge job that you don't feel up to it's okay because it's not up to you alone Your most important help in that challenge is the Holy Spirit. As we give ourselves to God, he doesn't watch us and wait for us to figure it out ourselves. He comes down, his grace extends even to helping us learn to be gracious through the Holy Spirit. But he also gives us a family. We also work together to figure this out. This congregation is one of those branches of the family. So if you're looking for a group of people that will help you as, they're help, as we're helping each other figure this out, that's who we are. And we'd love for you to get um, more involved in being a disciple of Jesus. At Turner Christian Church, we believe that being a disciple of Jesus means that you connect with God and his church, you grow in faith and love, and you serve your community and world. And if, that, if you feel called to take another step in discipleship, we have cards in the seat backs in front of you. That you can use to fill that out and put it in the box, and we'll get a hold of you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and I'm going to ask you to, to really consider right now what ha, where have you been in God's kingdom of grace? How have you been living? And in what ways do you need to reinvest in God's grace, return to that mindset of grace? And what opportunities do you have to share the good news with other people that there is enough through Jesus Christ? and that we can all be transformed by his grace. I encourage you to consider that, consider how you might respond as we stand and sing our final song.